Chapter Nine of the Crown of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Crown of Life by George Gissing. Chapter Nine. At the head of Wensleydale, where rolling moor grows mountainous towards the marches of Yorkshire and Westmoreland, stands a little market town named Hawes. One winding street of houses and shops grey, hard-featured, stout against the weather, with little byways climbing to the height above, on which rises the rugged church, stern even in sunshine, its tower like a stronghold looking out upon the brooding place of storms. Like its inhabitants, the place is harsh of aspect, warm at heart. Scornful of graces, its honest solidity speaks the people that built it for their home. This way and that go forth the well-kept roads leading to other towns, their sharp tracks shine over the dark moorland, climbing by wind-swept hamlets by many a lonely farm, dipping into sudden hollows where streams become cascades and guiding the wayfarers by high rocky passes from dale to dale. A country always impressive by the severe beauty of its outlines, sometimes speaking to the heart in radiant stillness, its moments of repose mirthful sometimes, inspiring joyous life with the gleams of its vast sky, the sweet keen breath of its heaths and pastures, but for the most part shadowed, melancholy, an austere nurse of the striving spirit of man, with menace in its mountain rack, in the rushing voice of its winds and torrents. Here, in a small, plain cottage, stone-walled, stone-roofed, looking over the wide and deep hollow of a stream, a beck in the local language, which at this point makes a sounding cataract on its course from the great moor above, lived Jerome Otway. It had been his home for some ten years. He lived as a man of small but sufficient means, amid very plain household furniture, and with no sort of social pretense. With him dwelt his wife and one maid-servant. On an evening of midsummer, still and sunny, the old man sat among his books. Open before him the great poem of Dante. His much-lined face, austere in habitual expression, yet with infinite possibilities of radiance in the dark eyes, of tenderness on the mobile lips, was crowned with hair which had turned iron-grey, but remained wonderfully thick and strong. The moustache and beard, only a slight growth, were perfectly white. He had once been of more than average stature. Now his bent shoulders and meagre limbs gave him an appearance of shortness, whilst he suffered on the score of dignity by an excessive disregard of his clothing. He sat in a round-backed wooden chair at an ordinary table, on which were several volumes ranked on end, a large blotter, and an inkstand. The room was exclusively his, two bookcases and a few portraits on the walls being almost the only other furniture. But at this moment it was shared by Mrs. Otway, who, having some sort of woman's work on her lap, sat using her fingers and her tongue with steady diligence. She looked about forty, had a colourless but healthy face, not remarkable for charm, and was dressed as a sober, self-respecting gentlewoman. In her accents sounded nothing harsh, nothing vehement. She talked quietly, without varied inflections, as if thoughtfully expounding an agreeable theme. Such talk might well have inclined a disinterested hearer to somnolence, 
but her husband's visage and his movements betokened no such peaceful tendency every moment he grew more fidgety betrayed a stronger irritation i suppose mrs otway was saying there are persons who live without any religious conscience it seems very strange one would think that no soul could be at rest in utter disregard of its maker in complete neglect of the plainest duties of a creature endowed with human intelligence which means of course a power to perceive spiritual truths yet such persons seem capable of going through a long life without once feeling the impulse to worship to render thanks and praise to the supreme being i suppose they very early deadened their spiritual faculties perhaps by loose habits of life or by the indulgence of excessive self-esteem or by jerome made a quick gesture with his hands as if defending himself against a blow then he turned to his wife and regarded her fixedly will it take you much longer he asked with obvious struggle for self-command but speaking courteously to exhaust this theme it annoys you said the lady very coldly straightening herself to an offended attitude i confess it does or rather it worries me if i may beg i understood you to invite me to your room i did and the fact of my having done so ought i should think to have withheld you from assailing me with your acrid tedium thank you said mrs otway as she rose to her full height i will leave you to your own tedium which must be acrid enough i imagine to judge from the face you generally wear and she haughtily withdrew a scene of this kind never more violent always checked at the right moment occurred between them about once every month during the rest of their time they lived without mutual aggression seldom conversing but maintaining the externals of ordinary domestic intercourse nor was either of them acutely unhappy the old man jerome otway was sixty-five but might have been taken for seventy did not as a rule wear a sour countenance he seldom smiled but his grave air had no cast of gloominess it was profoundly meditative tending often to the rapture of high vision the lady had her own sufficient pursuits chief among them a rigid attention to matters ecclesiastical local and national that her husband held notably aloof from such interests was the subject of mrs otway's avowed grief and her peculiar method of assailing his position brought about the periodical disturbance which seemed on the whole an agreeable feature of her existence he lived much in the past brooding upon his years of activity as author journalist lecturer conspirator between eighteen forty six and eighteen seventy he talked in his long days of silence with men whose names are written in history men whom he had familiarly known with whom he had struggled and hoped for the better time mazzini and herzen kossuth and ledru rollin bakunin louis blanc and a crowd of less eminent fighters in the everlasting war of human emancipation the war that aims at peace the strife that assails tyranny and militarism and international hatred beginning with chartism and narrowly escaping the fierce penalties suffered by some of his comrades he grew to wider activities 
and for a moment seemed likely to achieve a bright position among the liberators of mankind but jerome otway had more zeal than power and such powers as he commanded were scattered over too wide a field of enthusiastic endeavour he succeeded neither as a man of thought nor as a man of action his verses were not quite poetry his prose was not quite literature personally he interested and exalted but without inspiring confidence such as is given to the born leader and in this year eighteen eighty six when two or three letters on the irish question appeared over his signature few readers attached any meaning to the name jerome otway had fought his fight and was forgotten he married for the first time at one-and-twenty his choice being the daughter of an impoverished county family a girl neither handsome nor sweet-natured but as it seemed much in sympathy with his humanitarian views properly speaking he did not choose her the men who choose who deliberately select a wife are very few and jerome otway could never have been one of them he was ardent and impulsive marriage becoming a necessity he clutched at the first chance which in any way addressed his imagination and the result was calamitous in a year or two his wife repented the thoughtlessness with which she had sacrificed the possibilities of her birth and breeding for marriage with a man of no wealth narrow of soul with a certain frothy intelligence she quickly outgrew the mood of social rebellion which had originated in personal discontent and thenceforward she had nothing but angry scorn for the husband who allowed her to live in poverty two sons were born to them the elder named daniel after o'connell and the second called alexander after the russian herzen for twelve years they lived in suppressed or flagrant hostility then mrs otway died of cholera to add to the bitterness of her fate she had just received from one of her county relatives a legacy of a couple of thousand pounds this money which became his own otway invested in a newspaper then being started by certain of his friends a paper as it seemed little likely to have commercial success but which after many changes of editorship ultimately became an established organ of liberalism the agitator retained an interest in this venture and the small income it still continued to yield him was more than enough for his personal needs it enabled him to set a little aside year after year thus forming a fund which latterly he always thought of as destined to benefit his youngest son the child of his second marriage for he did not long remain solitary and his next adventure was somewhat in keeping with the character he had earned in public estimate living for a time in switzerland he there met with a young englishwoman married but parted from her husband who was maintaining herself at geneva as a teacher of languages jerome was drawn to her wooed her and won her love the husband a catholic refused her a legal release but the irregular union was a true marriage it had lasted for about four years when their only child was born and in another twelve months jerome was again a widower a small sum of money which had belonged to the dead woman jerome at her wish put out at interest for their boy if he should attain manhood the child's name was piers for jerome happened at that time to be studying old langland's vision with delight in the brave singer who so long ago cried for social justice one of the few in christendom who held by the spirit of christ 
He was now forty-five years old. He mourned the loss of his comrade, a gentle, loving woman, whom, though she seldom understood his views of life, his moods and his aims, he had held in affection and esteem. For eight years he went his way alone, and then, chancing to be at a seaside place in the north of England, he made the acquaintance of a mother and daughter who kept a circulating library, and in less than six months the daughter became Mrs. Otway. Aged not quite thirty, tall, graceful, with a long, pale face distinguished by its air of meditative refinement, this lady probably never made quite clear to herself her motives in accepting the wooer of fifty-three, whose life had passed in labours and experiences with which she could feel nothing like true sympathy. Perhaps it was that she had never before received offer of marriage. Perhaps Jerome's eloquent dark eyes, of which the gleam was not yet dulled, seconded the emotional language of his lips, and stirred her for the moment to genuine feeling. For a few months they seemed tolerably mated, and then the inevitable divergence began to show itself. Jerome withdrew into his reveries, became taciturn, absorbed himself at length in the study of Dante. Mrs. Otway, resenting this desertion, grew critical, condemnatory, and as if to atone for her union with a man who stood outside all the creeds, developed her mild orthodoxy into a peculiarly virulent form of Anglican Puritanism. The only thing that kept them together was their common inclination for a retired existence and their love of the northern moorland. Looking back upon his marriages, the old man wondered sadly. Why had he not, he who worshipped the idea of womanhood, sought patiently for his perfect wife? Somewhere in the world he would have found her, could he have but subdued himself to the high seriousness of the quest. In a youthful poem he had sung of love as the crown of life, believing it fervently, he believed it now with a fervour more intense, because more spiritual. That crown he had missed, even as did the multitude of mankind. Only to the elect is it granted, the few chosen, where all are called. To some it falls as if by the pure grace of heaven, meeting them as they walk in the common way. Some, the fewest, attain it by merit of patient hope, climbing resolute, until on the heights of noble life, a face shines before them, the face of one who murmurs, Guarda mi ben. He thought much, too, about his offspring. The two children of his first marriage he had educated on the approved English model, making them gentlemen, partly because he knew not well how else to train them, for Jerome was far too weak on the practical side to have shaped a working system of his own, a system he durst rely upon, and partly, too, because they seemed to him to inherit many characteristics from their mother, and so to be naturally fitted for some conventional upper-class career. The result was grievous failure. In the case of Piers, he decided to disregard the boy's seeming qualifications, and, after having him schooled abroad for the sake of modern languages, to put him early into commerce. If Piers were marked out for better things, this discipline could do him no harm, and to all appearances the course had been a wise one. Pierce had as yet given no cause for complaint. In wearying of trade, in aiming at something more liberal, he claimed no more than his rights. With silent satisfaction, Jerome watched the boy's endeavours. 
his heart warming when he received one of those well-worded and dutiful yet by no means commonplace letters which came from geneva and from london on piers he put the hope of his latter day and it gladdened him to think that this his only promising child was the offspring of the union which he could recall with tenderness when mrs otway had withdrawn with her sour dignity the old man sighed and lost himself in melancholy musing the house was as usual very still and from without the only sound was that of the beck leaping down over its stony ledges jerome loved this sound it tuned his thoughts it saved him from many a fit of ill-humour it harmonised with the melody of dante's verses fit accompaniment to many a passage of profound feeling of noble imagery even now he had been brooding the anguish of maestro adamo who hears for ever le ruscelette che deverte colli del casantin descenden giuso in anno and the music of the tuscan fountains blended with the voice of this smallland stream there was a knock at the door the maid-servant handed him a letter it came from piers the father read it and after a few lines with grave visage piers began by saying that a day or two ago he had all but resolved to run down to hawes for he had something very serious to speak about on the whole it seemed better to make the communication in writing i have abandoned the examination and all thought of the civil service if i invented reasons for this you would not believe them and you would think ill of me the best way is to tell you the plain truth and run the risk of being thought a simpleton or something worse i have been in great trouble have gone through a bad time some weeks ago there came to stay here a girl of eighteen or nineteen the daughter of dr lowndes derwent whose name perhaps you know she is very beautiful and i was unlucky enough if i ought to use such a phrase to fall in love with her i won't try to explain what this meant to me you wouldn't have patience to read it but it stopped my studies it utterly overthrew my work i was all but ill i suffered horribly it was my first such experience i hope it may be the last in that form indeed i believe it will for i can't imagine that i shall ever feel towards anyone else in the same way and you will smile no doubt i have a conviction that irene derwent will remain my ideal as long as i live <sighs> enough of that it being quite clear to me that i simply could not go in for the examination i hit upon another scheme one it seemed to me which might not altogether displease you i went to see mr tadworth and told him that i had decided to go back into business could he i asked think of giving me a place in their office at odessa if necessary i would work without salary till i had thoroughly learned russian and could substantially serve them well mr tadworth was very kind and after a little questioning promised to send me out to odessa in some capacity or other still to be determined i am to go in about ten days this father is my final decision i shall give myself to the business heartily and energetically i think there's no harm in telling you that i hope to make money if i do so it will be done i think honourably as the result of hard work i had better not see you i should be ashamed but i beg you will write to me soon 
I hope I shall not have overtried your patience. Bear with me if you can, and give me the encouragement I value. Jerome pondered long. He looked anything but displeased. There was tenderness in his smile and sympathy. Something, too, of pride. Very much against his usual practice, he wrote a reply the same day. So be it, my dear lad. I have no fault to find, no criticism to offer. Your letter is an honest one, and it has much moved me. Let me just say this. You rightly doubt whether you should call yourself unlucky. If, as I can imagine, the daughter of Dr. Derwent is a girl worth your homage, nothing better could have befallen you than this discovery of your ideal. Whether you will be faithful to it, the gods alone know. If you can be, even for a few years of youth, so much the happier and nobler your lot. Work at money-making, then, and as I catch a glimmer of your meaning in this resolve, I will tell you something for your comfort. If you hold on at commerce and verily make way, and otherwise approve yourself what I think you, I promise that you shall not lack advancement. Plainly, I have a little matter of money put by for sundry uses, and if the day comes when something of capital would stead you, after due trial, as I premise, it shall be at your disposal. Write to me with a free heart. I've lived my life. Perchance I can help you to live yours better. The will, assuredly, is not wanting. Courage, then. Pursue your purpose. Con l'animo che vince ogni battaglia se col suo grave corpo non sacascia and believe me that you could have no better intimate for leisure hours than the old florentine who knew so many things among them your own particular complaint End of chapter nine